0: Trump or no Trump, religious authoritarianism is here to stay. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive.
1: Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shot. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: It would be unwise to dismiss outgoing President Donald Trump's bizarre insistence that truth is false, that he won, and that Joe Biden lost. We can't dismiss that as merely laughable. No question, it seems highly likely that with time, the majority will accept the fact that Biden won and Trump lost. However, a committed minority has convinced itself that Trump was sent by God and they are not about to go away. As we've seen in history, fanatical minorities can still do serious damage to a country by carrying out its powerful religious zeal, putting it into disruptive, sometimes violent action. In her op-ed in the New York Times, Catherine Stewart sends out a warning, Trump or no Trump, religious authoritarianism is here to stay. She warns that Trump may have lost the White House, but Christian nationalists still plan to win the war, though they lost that battle. Catherine Stewart is the author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, which she and I discussed in early March as COVID first hit. Back then, uh, we didn't even know who the Democrat would be to run against Trump, nor more importantly, if Trump could be beaten at all. Now that Trump has been defeated, our guest argues that the danger from the religious nationalists that formed Trump's devoted base is not entirely over. But without their worshiped, anointed-by-God leader, why won't they just fade away? How can they do it? What means can they use to interrupt the democratic functioning of the American republic? Stewart says there are signs now that indicate that the movement seems determined to reinterpret defeat at the top of the ticket as evidence of persecution and of its own righteousness. How does one, or a democracy, deal with that illogical but determined fanaticism? And what lessons might there be from a hundred years ago when Germany, in fact, lost the Great War, but a few in power similarly rejected the loss as rigged and illegitimate. All across America and the world, there was dancing in the streets that Saturday, when it was determined that Biden and not Trump would be our next president. The four-year nightmare was over, or so it certainly seemed. But your book, which we discussed in March, is about the new movement that provided the lift, putting Trump and Barr in office in the first place. Briefly, what is that movement that preceded Trump and you say is not done yet? What were their goals or are their goals and how successful have they been in achieving them?
1: Hey, it's Catherine. So great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You know, the movement is often called the Christian right or the religious right or Christian nationalism. And other people use names uh, for it, uh, different names for it. I use the term religious nationalism in the subtitle of my book to make clear its similarities with other forms of religious nationalism around the world. So um, there's a lot to unpack here. And I think, you know, let's take a quick look at the movement itself. Um, It's held together in two ways. First of all, it has a certain backward looking or regressive ideology that stresses a return to some earlier, uh, form of America was an earlier idea of an idea of an earlier America, which never actually existed. And it's also held together by a network of national operatives and organizations that are intent on pushing that ideology and its borders into a foundation for political power. Um, so that was there long before Trump was on the scene. He made extensive use of it and he represented certain aspects of it, um, much better than other presidents before him. He understood mm. the resentment and paranoia at the heart of a lot of it. He understood the desire for an authoritarian leader who would face down the alleged enemies of the paranoid, but he mm-hmm. was working with material that was already there.
0: Yeah, interesting. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting that people sometimes see him as the problem. Once he's gone, everything's all hunky-dory. Mm-mm, not the case. Amy Coney Barrett is Trump's third appointment to the Supreme Court. And many fear the traditional separation of church and state is now threatened as never before. This is all part of that uh, uh, religious nationalism. In a 2006 commencement speech at Notre Dame Law School, Barrett exhorted graduates not to make their legal careers an end in and of themselves, but, quote, as a means to an end that is part of building the kingdom of God, unquote. That's from our Supreme Court justice. Supreme Court is certainly the most visible But it's just one of the many, many federal courts on which the religious nationalists have focused laser-like for the past four years. What what is that all about? How important is the takeover of the courts to them and to the rest of us, Catherine?
1: It's a really important point, Bert. I mean, Trump has something like 200, I think it's 221 Appointees confirmed to the courts. That's about a fifth of the federal judiciary. I mean, look at those numbers. If you can get the courts, you can get rulings you want and change society. So for years, to a really underappreciated degree, the movement has achieved achieved its aims and made gains for the courts. Um, it's been a huge focus of their um, efforts, the uh, efforts of the right. They've trained their people to vote on the issue of justices. And I think that um, a lot of um, people sort of high level progressives and Democrats understand that the courts are important. But a lot of people in the sort of rank and file don't see that yet, Uh, but they're incredibly important. Um, It's also worth pointing out that the judiciary is shaped by these legal advocacy groups around it. Um, the ones providing amicus briefs on cases like Fulton and Espinoza, the sort of church-state cases that we've seen in uh, the past year or so. Um, I'm thinking about these groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom, Beckett, Liberty Council. These are sort of right-wing legal advocacy groups that sort of coordinate um, and often sort of take the same talking points and same stances on some of these issues. Mm. And that's really important, uh, to them, to the right. It's how a lot of um, folks justified their support for Trump. They knew he was going to appoint right-wing justices. And it should be one of the major issues that liberals and progressives vote on. Um, I think the right understood a long time ago that they were not really going to win at the ballot box. And the economic right received the same, uh, you know, realized the same thing, which is that their policies would be unpopular among the general public, especially the economic far right wing, sort of libertarians and the like, sort of far right economic wing of the Republican Party. So what they did is, you know, realizing that they couldn't win at the ballot box, they invested heavily in these legal advocacy groups. And they continue to do so through groups like the Federalist Society. The amount of money that cycles through the right-wing legal ecosphere is tremendous. Mm. Um, And uh, unfortunately, um, you know, we need, uh, progressives uh, have not always grasped the importance of
0: that. Oh, that is for sure. They they grasped it long before we did. And back around 2010, when there was the Tea Party, they understood working from the bottom up. And I don't know why liberals and progressives and what I would consider it, you know, the old vital center hasn't gotten that as well. And you talk about these uh, advocacy groups. A lot of people don't understand having been a legislator myself, lobbyists are very important, because especially when I was in the state Senate, there were uh, only 24 of us compared to 400 in the house we can't focus on everything we have to rely on a lot of these lobbyists who have information and have them these uh, legal advocacy groups have so much power and influence that's it's something it's invisible but it's real you know the supreme court is really visible but all this other stuff boy it's yeah it's
1: true i mean if you look at the you know supreme court today it's incredibly uh, disproportionate. It's hard to see it as a legitimate representative of the power that we, the people have invested in it through our wow. constitution. I mean, they're political appointees and, you know, Trump had three, um, uh, has three appointments mm-hmm. on the Supreme court currently. Um, but lo- let's look at some of the others. I mean, two of them, that is Gorsuch and Barrett have knowingly mm-hmm. accepted seats uh, acquired at the ex- you know, Expense of flagrant disregard for the processes described in the Constitution. Um, uh, uh, Kavanaugh promised in the course of his confirmation to deliver partisan payback. I think what goes yes. around comes around were his precise words, um, mm. uh, even as he likely perjured himself. Uh, Fourth, Alito nice. uh, recently delivered a very partisan rant to the Federal Society, um, a- according to the uh the for media relations former media relations director um of the uh, federal society um Leonard Leo who is uh head of it federal society um realized that he wanted to sort of stack the courts because um a lot of he recognized a lot of his policies would be unpopular so uh-huh. the former media relations director sort of said this and described this in an interview um you know, whether it's true or not, he his former media relations director said it. And then, you know, look look at Thomas. He's yeah. often appearing at these events that have a kind of distinctly partisan political cast. And his wife is exceptionally partisan. She yes. um you know, appears she was uh, at these sort of United and Purpose Awards and all of these other sort of events that are intended to celebrate um partisan activists. So you know, this is um, you know here we are, and yet uh, the court is supposed to represent um, the the will of the people, yes. and not not uh, serve as an instrument and 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 faithfully interpret the Constitution, and and, and not um, I should say you know faithfully interpret the Constitution, and not serve as the instrument of a partisan minority
0: and undermine it. And the 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 uh, founders of this country, the uh, older white men who wrote the Constitution intended there to be three distinct branches to be checks and balances on each other, mm-hmm. and they could not have foreseen this kind of thing happening. But it's really undermining the whole basis of uh, checks and balances. It's uh, it, it's I don't you know it's going to be very very difficult to deal with that aspect of it. The courts as we uh, move ahead into the uh, Biden era, and as your op-ed points out. The Reverend Franklin Graham, a big Trump supporter, tweeted that the courts will, quote, determine who wins the presidency, unquote. Uh, it seems like they haven't given up on that. On um, one ways, does that intentionally undermine democracy with great enthusiasm and uniquely boost minority rule on the part of the religious nationalists? And how how can they still think that the courts will do it? It seems like they 're not fooling that they really think the courts can uh, undermine this election.
1: you know um, you know it's a way for him to say that all the votes in favor of Biden are illegitimate and the numbers are just a sham, and it's really just a power play that has to be decided in the courts, hopefully by these right wing judges. So narratives like this boost the fact that we have a big problem in our country, which is minority rule, Um, saying, you know, that it's up to the courts is a way of saying the election is illegitimate. And that boosts the idea of minority rule, because if they can't win by votes, the only hope is to question legitimacy of the most fundamental democratic process, which is voting and then kick it off to some fun, um, politically appointed Oof. judges. You know, I, you know, in my op-ed, I point out that we have three, uh, at least three big problems um, right now um, uh, with the religious right in, in, the, in the current situation. The first is that we really have um, a kind of hermetic messaging sphere that makes it hard for those on the outside to impact the base of this movement the second is that we have a kind of entrenched minority of voters, which keeps the uh, Grand Old Party in bed with Christian Nationalists or mm. the Christian, you know, Christian Nationalist movement. And, and the third is that we have a sort of economic, uh, sort of, as you mentioned, second gilded age of economic inequality, which um, for a variety of reasons produces a kind of irrationality and fanaticism. <sighs> And that creates a large numbers of people at the top who want to manipulate those at the bottom to continue to vote for the economic policies that favor the plutocracy and they've got lots of money to invest in um the Christian nationalist uh, universe or um uh, in the in religious right in order to promote the culture wars that get sort of the rank and file to vote on these um issues so um we We do have a lot of challenges today. In our democracy, but I think the um, the issue of the sort of right-wing propaganda sphere is a really big one.
0: Yes, it's, it's very, very difficult to crack for the reasons that you state. For those who may have just tuned in, Burt Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Catherine Stewart, author of uh, the very important book, The Power Worshippers, about uh, the religious nationalists. And she has an op-ed in the New York Times very recently, Trump or no Trump, religious authoritarianism is here to stay. And it amazes me how these uh, these groups can wave the American flag and consider themselves so deeply patriotic and question the patriotism of everyone else when religious nationalism is not a republican form of government. I don't I I don't think people can understand what the difference is between religious nationalism, which is not patriotism, it's something else entirely. I mean to me how they can wave the American flag and be for Trump and religious nationalism. It just it amazes me.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's a movement. They sort of wrap themselves in the flag and wear red, white, and blue. But it's actually, um, you know, the conflation of the idea of America with a very particular um, sort of religious and cultural identities, uh, and it's a way of saying we are the true Americans, and right. everyone else is not. It's right. like a way to unite uh, a certain. A fanatical minority, frankly, or um, mm-hmm. uh, one group, and, and say that there's like lines between insider and outsider, pure versus mm. impure. Mm. You're with us or you're against us. So it's actually a way wow. to divide Americans yes. rather than unite Americans. We have an irreducibly pluralistic country, you know, representing people of all, many faiths, all faiths and no faiths. <laughs> Um, people who are very different uh, ethnic and yes. religious and uh, racial backgrounds and come from many different countries. And United, you know, the our founders really created a country, you know, as, as flawed as things have been. Mm-hmm. They, there was this sort of ring of gold in there. It was like, you know, mm-hmm. united by an idea rather than an ethnic identity or mm-hmm. rather than by a religion. It was really... Um, uh, united by an idea of uh, quality yeah. um, and justice, so these are ideals to aspire to. And uh, religious nationalism, it bears so many similarities with other forms of religious nationalism around the world. So when you see a leader like Putin in Russia, or Erdogan in Turkey, or Modi in India, you know, or um, Viktor
0: Orbán, or Duda
1: in Hungary, uh, and sorry, Duda in, in Poland, when they um, these Authoritarian leaders ally themselves with you know, hyper-conservative r- religious leaders in their countries in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of political power. power. We rightly recognize this as a form of religious nationalism. It is deeply anti-democratic, and it flies in the face of the ideals uh, to which our um, founders uh, aspired or their, their works aspired
0: that is for sure and it you know it doesn't come from nowhere either certainly there've been a uh, uh, 100% americanism that was the case uh, wilson used that uh, mccarthy used that you know to to cast doubt on you know who is really an american now mm-hmm. one of the things that fascinated me reading your book is about reproductive rights where where does the issue of reproductive rights come in and how and why is it so central to American religious nationalists.
1: The abortion issue is a way of creating single issue voters and mo- uh, you know mobilizing them to vote for the hyper conservative candidates that the movement favors. If you can get people to vote on a single binary life and death issue, you can control their vote. So the way the issue is framed by the right is it's not really about abortion, it's about uniting and dividing people for the purpose of amassing political power. Um, I've attended over the past decade a number of abortion conferences and marches for life and Evangelicals for Life gatherings and other types of you know uh, conferences centered on the issue of abortion. And um, it, what really strikes me is there's no uh, concern for reducing the number of look no no one nobody wakes up and says you know, uh, should I, you know, go see a movie today, or should I get an abortion? (laughs) It's like, this isn't, you know, (laughs) there's no effort to reduce the number of, you know, prevent women, protect women from becoming pregnant against their will. It's really about, um, uh, the issue is all legislation, 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 Mm. you know, and here's a funny thing. You know, I think any, um, Religious nationals have been incredibly successful at controlling the story of their past. They've sold us this idea that their movement was a grassroots issue to abortion, but it's not. Now, One of the key issues that animated the movement in its early days was the fear that racially segregated academies might be deprived of their lucrative tax exemptions. But they needed a rallying cry. That was going to be broadly appealing. And they knew that uh, a a slogan like, stop the tax on segregation, just wasn't going to cut it. So they basically, uh, leaders of this new movement, got together and they sort of reviewed a few of the issues that they might use to unite this new movement. Now, we're talking about 1979 or so. This is six years after Roe v. Wade passed. So, uh, of course, they were upset about the tax privileges of racist academies getting revoked. They were also worried about the women's rights movement. They were really deeply upset about that. But the Equal Rights Amendment at the time was going down in flames. So they got down, you know, went down this list, and then they got to the abortion issue, and they, it was almost like a light bulb went on. <laughs> and they were like, that could work. So the part of the history that's been erased by the movement leadership is that when Roe v. Wade was passed – most Protestant Republicans supported it. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention hailed the decision. They actually published an op ed in 1971 and another in 1974 hailing liberalization of abortion law. Mm. They saw this as absolutely consistent with. Um, you know, sort of Protestant ideas about personal responsibility. Uh, Ronald Reagan himself passed the most liberal abortion law in the country in 67. Uh, Conservative hero Barry Goldwater supported abortion law liberalization too, at least early in his career. Um, And uh, Betty Ford hailed uh, Roe versus Wade. Uh, The passage of Roe versus Wade is a great, great decision. But it's over time that Activists like Phyllis Schlafly and Paul Weyrich and others saw the potential for this yeah. issue to unite their movement, to unite conservative Protestants and conservative Catholics, and over time they purged these pro-choice voices mm. from the Republican Party. So today we almost see a new pro-life religion, but it's a modern creation and it was created for political purposes.
0: And I'm reminded in the 2020 election, the whole uh, uh, allegation of pedophilia, that all Democrats are child abusers. It was, of course, (laughs) completely absurd. But somebody smart, no doubt, thought, everybody's against child abuse. There we go. Let's use this. I mean, there's not a shred. It's absurd. But it's a way of uniting people. And I, I was amazed how many people would repeat that Total nonsense that all Democrats are pedophiles and that they're, you know, abusing children. They're, they're smart in focusing on what's going to bring people out. It's, it's astounding to me, but it's, I have to give them credit. It worked. 70 million people voted for Trump. And in, in what ways was Trump a near perfect model of religious authoritarianism?
1: Wow. I mean, yeah, you don't build authoritarian movements through consensus and compromise and (laughs) rational debate. (laughs) You build them by compelling everyone to adhere to extreme and irrational positions and by insisting that they declare their absolute and unwavering fealty to an extreme and irrational leader. I mean, separating people from um, rational discourse is a great way to get them to support an authoritarian So here's Trump, he's a sort of um, amoral, irrational leader, and he, they see him as someone who's going to fight for their tribe and he's going to fight dirty. Like if you think you're in an absolutely apocalyptic struggle w- between absolute good and absolute evil, you don't want the nice guy. You want the mean guy uh. who's going to fight dirty for your tribe, right? So this is like an enemy-driven movement. That's the whole – you know, where all this sort of misinformation comes in. They need to create an enemy. Uh. If they can't find an issue, they'll create one. <laughs> and um, that is the people who are part of um, – the movement and look when we're talking about the rank and file and I'd like to do that we're talking about a yes. wide range of people a lot of them are really great people who really mean well they really care for our country I'm not saying that they're evil but like by compelling people to believe, buy into these conspiracies they're really distorting the information that they're working with so and they've persuaded them over time that they face a diabolical enemy who represents an, an existential threat to our country and to their identity, mm. and that I would say, you know, it's really important. I think if you're discussing this movement, to distinguish between the leaders and yes. the followers. Okay. Yes. So, the rank and file, as I mentioned earlier, are like this wide range of people with different ideas and different interests, and you know, um, a lot of them are, um, I think, in a in in, in back, against a background of economic. They have vast economic inequality. Yes. A lot of them are really concerned about sort of losing what they've got and fall. there's so much further to fall. And so they're anxious, right? Yes. And so the, the sort of religious right plays into those fears um, and they sort of play into other fears that they have about, you know, different sort of cultural issues and uh, gender anxieties and things like that. And they do it in order to, um, you know the end of the day, during the Trump years, it was all about um, getting them to sort of throw their support behind Trump. And he played to that perfectly. Yes. I remember he gave a speech where he said, an attack on me is an attack on you. Yes. He encouraged his supporters to see him as their perfect, even divine representative. It was actually very culty. Remember, a lot of the um, uh, representatives of the movement referred to Trump as biblical kings, like King David or King Mm -hmm. Cyrus an imperfect ruler through whom God chose to enact his will. Um, Paula White, who became a member of his uh, administration uh, in the Faith and Opportunity, um, uh, I can't remember the exact title of her uh, job title she was given, but she had a White House job, and she said, it is God that raises up a king. Here's the thing about kings. They don't have to follow the rules. They're a law unto themselves, and they aren't rulers of democracies. What they say goes... And that drives home the fact that this is an anti-democratic movement, that doesn't believe in representative democracy, pluralism, or equality, or the balance of power.
0: Interesting. That really explains a lot. And uh, uh, it it does. Uh, it's interesting to me that I think a lot of the base that we're talking about. Yeah, they're they're good people, and they feel, I think, correctly that they live in the flyover states. You know the the Democrats, the DNC, the top of the party, has been elitist and has looked down on them and not connected with them. And any kind of populist movement requires, by definition, connecting with the people who feel left out and overlooked. Democrats have had opportunity after opportunity to to connect with these people, and they haven't done it. And there's just this uh, waiting uh, group, energized group, uh, that that is there. And it has been picked up and used by the uh, religious nationalists. And I, I, it doesn't have to be that way. Populism doesn't have to be right wing.
1: What's really interesting is if you look at the data from 2016, now we have all the data, um, uh, Trump lost among uh, the bottom maybe 20 to 30 percent of the uh, economic uh-huh. – um, uh, uh, if you look at the people in the bottom deciles and the top deciles, he lost among the bottom, and he lost among the top ten. What he won was more the people in the middle, yes. right? And it, I guess a, against a backdrop of rising economic inequalities, you mentioned, the sort of gilded age, we have a situation where people at all ends of the economic spectrum are insecure, right? Huh. Because um, – it's so much harder to sort of get yourself up a rung and there's so much further to fall, you know, when you fall down and, um, people, um, at, you know, on the bottom 90% of the economic, um, uh, uh, spectrum are are often really struggling. You know, people finding it harder to pay their mortgage or pay their rent. Um, people, um, finding it harder to have a decent lifestyle, um, Public schools are struggling. People are finding it harder to um, afford health care. And the shocking thing is, if you look at the economic policies endorsed by Democrats, these are um, economic policies that are going to benefit yes. folks in the middle. They yes. are going. You know, Democrats stand for a more robust health care system, a more robust public education, which you know, 90% of Americans educate their their children in public schools. Um, and yet the the right was able to seize the narrative through these politics of grievance that they uh, appealed mm. to. I mean, um, and it was very, uh, I believe, quite cynical. I think a very substantial number of the rank and file who supported Trump do not explicitly support anything like a theocracy. I think many of them would be really unhappy to learn all of the details Of what their leaders are proposing, um, especially economic details. I mean, much of this group votes identity, not just policy. So when they're voting for a candidate who promises to end abortion, as they've been trained to Mm -hmm. do, or when they insist that America is a Christian nation, which is something their leaders say, they're not really aiming for fundamental changes in the way the American government is organized. They're really making a statement about who they are and what they value them in themselves. So it's not a rational decision. It's in a way it's their, it's really an, a vote for identity. Yes. Um I guess it's a rational decision in that way. They're they're affirming their identity, right? But they may not be helping their um their bottom lines or pocketbooks. But you know for leaders of the movement, the heads of the right wing policy groups, networking groups, the media and legislative initiatives, the data organizations and the like their vision involves a lot – it doesn't involve um, extending uh, aid, like, you know, bolstering health care to, to, the, to the rank and file. It doesn't involve improving the education for their school schoolchildren. Uh, I mean, they have these theories about education which tend to uh, weaken public education. But really what their vision involves is a lot more power for themselves and their networks and for the political leaders that they support – um, they're looking for, forward to a time when uh, they're, they're, they're aiming for policies that benefit their plutocratic funders. I mean, they cast themselves into an anti-elitist movement. But right. if you look at funders of the movement, I mean, these are people who are, have amassed like fortunes that I think most Americans have no idea yes. how huge these fortunes actually are. Um, and they're also aiming for a time when religious organizations can rely on government for two things. Number one, policies that privilege their religion, and number two, a constant flow of taxpayer money. I mean, if you look at what they're really after, I think um, sometimes it's just it's like all about the money. They, mm. you know, I don't have a problem with religious schools or religious organizations. That's fine. I mean, freedom of religion is, you know, um, it's very important. The second clause of our First Amendment, so, um, you know, freedom of worship. We all have the right to, to worship any God uh, we want or, 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 or none. And um, uh, freedom of religion is really uh, critical. But um, freedom of religion also includes the freedom from having to fund other people's religion with your tax dollars if you don't want to. And yet they're you know aiming for a larger and larger share of our tax
0: dollars. So much to discuss ahead as we go on. Bert Cohen here. For those who may have just tuned in, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with Catherine Stewart, author of uh, uh, The Power Worshippers. And also an op-ed in the New York Times very recently, Trump or no Trump, religious authoritarianism is here to stay. And one of the amazing things to me is, you know, it seems counterintuitive that the insistence of Trump and his supporters that there was massive fraud in the clearly above board and quite legitimate electoral victory of Joe Biden, that it's surprising that that would have an energizing role for the ongoing narrative of religious right. So they, they they, see the defeat as illegitimate, that it was a fraud. How is that an energizing role as they go forward?
1: It, uh, it will continue. Look, think about the birther narrative. The facts didn't, you know, people said, oh, Obama is not a real American. And the facts had no Uh, impact on that. People were like, look, in fact, don't worry, he is an American. Look, we're going to release his his birth certificate just so you know that didn't have any impact. What it did is prepare that sector of the electorate for the politics of resentment um, uh, and and, uh, lack of cooperation and it ensured, I think it contributed uh, to a large degree to Trump's victory in 2016. You have a large mass of people who you know, are incredibly resentful of, of our first black president. Let's face it, the birther narrative oh, was no incredibly question. racist. And that motivated them to vote uh, a Republican in 2016, to vote for uh, a candidate who'd promoted that narrative. So I think it's really... Laying the groundwork for this sort of ongoing politics of, of resentment and um, and
0: paranoia. So it continues from here on out. Even though he he did lose, it's it it could yeah. actually motivate him because uh, they 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 see it as a you know. And and I've seen people on the left over the many years that I've been involved with things who feel like losing is somehow righteous. You know, like they were cheated out of it. Like they deserve to win. And uh, it, it's a motivi- motivating uh, uh, factor for, for people who feel, you know, on the outside. And many years ago, a, a Unitarian minister friend of mine said, Bert, there's only two things in politics that really work, fear and reassurance. And I do believe that Biden, though he wasn't my first choice, Biden was the ideal candidate to reassure a nervous America. But the other part, the fear, Trump played like a fiddle, fear of the other, fear of unknown dark forces, the uh, deep state, whatever it's called, fear of some imagined uh, enemy. You write that what holds them together is not any centralized command structure, uh, but there's also a political style that seeks to provoke moral panic. In what ways did this manifest itself in the Trump term, and how might they continue to use that going forward?
1: Yeah, it's amazing. The assault that Trump perpetrated on democracy was so broad based and repetitive. (laughs) But the important thing to remember is not just did he do that, but Republican politicians enabled it. And the Republican base essentially said it was perfectly comfortable and, in fact, happy to see these direct assaults on democracy. I mean, just pick up the paper now. Trump is talking about pardoning members of his family. Who does that? Why would they need to be pardoned? The only people who need to be pardoned are criminals, right? Think about that. <laughs> he's, he's standing at a podium in the White House with a presidential seal and openly attacking the electoral system. He said he appointed members of SCOTUS hoping that they would help him out when sure. he needed to overturn an election. Yeah. He talked about imprisoning members of the press and how he has made abundantly clear that the law does not apply to him. Right. So it's obvious that these things are anti-democratic. Yes. But the more important lesson I think that we need to face now is that his supporters did not have a problem with any of it. They thought of his criminality and immorality – and authoritarianism as just fine, or at least they thought it wasn't a big enough deal to overcome their reasons for supporting him. I mean, some of them actually liked it. So it is clear that there are a collection of leaders that have sort of um, led a, 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 a large a large fraction of this country, probably larger than a quarter, but perhaps smaller than forty percent, that is fundamentally hostile to democracy mm. and that is a challenge that we 're going to have to face um uh, in the ne- in the coming years and I think um, there are these three things that we really need to address. We need to number one see information as uh, and good journalism as a public service yes. and a public good, and not just a sort of like you know like sausage that corporations can use to increase their profits like it doesn 't matter if it 's fact based or 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 not you know we can just use it to make money. No, we actually have to see information the dis- distribution of accountable information as um, as a you know public service, number two, I think we need to take steps to address um, the worst of economic inequality i mean even if i can 't i think no matter how much money I had, I think I would want to see a solid middle class and a stable, you know, uh, economic stability as a public good.
0: Yes, Um, because
1: it promotes political stability.
0: Yes. When you have
1: these vast inequalities you have, it leads to irrationality and political instability, and it makes people vulnerable to exploitation um, through fear. It's number two. Number three, we I think are going to have to address at some point some of the challenges or inequalities in our electoral system. Where, mm. um, you know, my my brother moved from um, one state to another. He moved from I think it was Texas to Montana, and he said, um, you know, it's amazing my vo- my vo- vote just by this move counts. You know, is, is seven times as valuable. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really? That's kind of astonishing. I mean, we we really need to. Um, You know, make sure that we have a. a, a, It's not. This is sort of beyond my wheelhouse, but we need to make sure we have a, a a system of voting and political representation that's actually equitable and fair. You know, I don't have the answer on how to do that, but I know there are a lot of smart people working on that.
0: Yeah, I hope so. And
1: uh, and oh yeah, and to to add to that, I think that you know, sort of people in the center, left, Democrats, um, you know, uh, liberals, whatever, need to invest, as you mentioned, in. Sort of um, infrastructure building. Uh, The right invested for decades in all the features of modern political campaigns, and they reached into the rank and file. And um, and, uh, those of us who reject the politics of conquest and division need to do that too.
0: Uh, I I don't see that happening at the top of the Democratic ticket but maybe so I still have some hope for Biden I think he could be it's possible he could still be a better president than Obama or Clinton and that he could be <clears throat> excuse me uh, pretty good in in, in many ways I'm, I'm Look it's clear that he won I mean oh, yeah. if you look at the um
1: he won um by you know even though he was attacked by a lot of the challengers I think they saw him as the front runner and yet um the plurality of voters um, went for him decisively. And, um, you know, the fact is we have a – in some ways, um, you know, I think a lot of people wanted to see somebody who going to restore our norms, someone who is yeah. not going to alienate sort of moderate Republicans, uh, somebody who is going to affirm uh, liberal ideals, and someone who is going to have a lot of um, – who is not politically naive. Uh, who understood the need to rebuild some of our um foreign alliances that have served us for oh, for decades. Yeah.
0: Very reassuring and I think, you know, that that right. worked really well.
1: Now is the time to come together and and not to sort of start nitpicking. I oh, mean, this is definitely. something that I think the right gets. Yes. They really understand that, you know, they they understand unity, the value of unity when necessary. And we have to recognize that Biden and Harris have literally saved us from autocracy. Yes. They've literally saved us from authoritarianism. And so, I mean, I think it's really time to kind of, you know, one might take issue with this appointment or that appointment, but, um, you know, and of course one needs to hold um, their elected officials accountable. Right. But um, I think that, um, uh, you know, our, our the 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 battle isn't is far from over. Yes. And I think that, you know, one might put one's efforts into sort of addressing some of those structural issues that. You know, we've been discussing.
0: And people can still push, as somebody said. I wish I knew the source of this quote that politics and protest are both necessary, but neither is sufficient by itself. We can do that. I was amazed. You said a large minority of Americans are hostile to democracy. That, that sort of stopped me in my tracks. Why would they be hostile to democracy? Do they recognize that they're hostile to democracy?
1: Tell I don't think that. so. I think they've been l- misled by some of their leaders. I mean, when you have, um, you know, Trump supporters and Trump himself standing up there and saying, this vote is illegitimate uh, and and casting doubt on our basic democratic process, in spite of all of the recounts and all this nonsense then you really have a large numbers of people who are being misled, yeah. and that's one of the reasons why I think um, holding media companies accountable to uh, promote uh, factually correct information and social media platforms accountable as well is just so important
0: and uh, we've we've had other right wing uh nationalists like Putin and so many others who who want to, who intended to undermine people's faith in our government. And it's worked really, really well. I don't I don't see how people can't see that. But they don't. And we talked about, you know, most of the people who, who supported uh, uh, Trump, you know, are sort of average income people. Some, you know, do pretty well. But there are some super rich who who specifically reached out to the so-called values voters to lock down their economic agenda. I wonder if you could name some names, please. Who are some sure. of these people? I,
1: I discuss a lot of them in my book. Um, uh, members of the DeVos Prince family, of course. Um, uh, the um, Skyfe A lot of them belong to, like, you know, Family Foundations, um uh sort of foundations related to Foster Fries or... Um, trying to think about um, some of the others I mean actually it's interesting oh the Wilkes brothers are really interesting they're uh, fracking billionaires oh, uh, from yeah. Texas um, uh, some of the others include oh just so many of them but one of the interesting things is that a lot of the Giving to organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom and the Family Research Council and the like happens through these donor-advised funds such as the National Christian Foundation, which I believe dispersed approximately $1.5 billion last year. So what happens is once the money flows into these organizations, you can't really see, you know, it's like it loses accountability. It's like the money ah. flows in and then it gets dispersed in these different ways through to some, a lot of these sort of right wing policy groups. So um, a lot of the giving happens that way. But what is clear is that there's a subsection, obviously, there are a lot of very wealthy people in America who support progressive causes too. Yes, yes. But there's a subsection of um, uh, the sort of plutocratic class that is as committed to free-market fundamentalism as they are to right-wing positions in the culture wars, or even more so. Oh, the Mercer family is another one, um, but there are so many. Um, and uh, and so they're really invested in trying to promote um, politicians – that are going to promote these right-wing economic policies—policies yeah. policies of deregulation of business, uh, minimal or uh, environmental regulation, or you know, rolling back environmental regulations because some of them need uh, minimal environmental regulation or no regulation in order to, you know, exploit the you know, resources they need to sure. increase their wealth. Or um, the Davoses have, of course, Betsy DeVos has a long interest in. Um, deflating public education diverting public money to religious schools yes. um, enhancing the power of religious schools and um, and private schools and the like so that's what her policies have promoted and so but they know that they're not really these policies would be really unpopular among the rank and file you know stripping the middle class of funds and uh, you know starving the social safety net so what they're doing is uh, getting them in the culture wars so, like some of these issues like same sex marriage or i don't know trans issues sometimes or abortion, these are like the little shiny baubles they dangle <laughs> in front of the rank and file right. to get them to vote a certain what to vote for certain politicians who then are going to give these plutocrats right. what they really want, which is deregulation yes. etc
0: and It's fascinating to me how uh, in uh, in Germany in the early part of the twentieth century, uh, there was a big populist movement and uh, the plutocrats back then were very, some of them, very supportive of uh, the Nazi party, and, and they used it, But and they profited tremendously from it, from using the, the populism, and it's happened in so many other countries that uh, you know people, I think, don't intend to help the very rich have much more power and much more money, but it ends up working that way. This is just sort of part of religious nationalism, and as we mentioned just a minute ago, the right wing evangelicals are highly motivated by what they call religious freedom. They, they t- you know, religion is big. They insist that religious freedom is threatened somehow by church state separation. When they say religious liberty, religious freedom, it means something very different from what I think of as religious liberty and freedom. What does it mean to them? And how, and in what way is that really anti democratic and perhaps even anti American?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's so much to talk about here. I mean, first I want to say that, you know, without getting into the historical details when you're talking about, um, you know, Germany – When it lost the Great War. Um, I think the lesson here is that keeping a large part of the population in a state of illusion is like a really bad idea if you want a stable democracy. And that goes back to what we were talking about before. So, religious liberty, as you and I know, is the freedom of thought, worship, and conscience. It includes the freedom to worship any God you want. And it also includes, or, uh, you know, practice your faith if you want. And it also includes the freedom from having to. Worship if you don't want to right. And it also includes the freedom from having to Support a, uh, a Particular um, Religious organization with your money If you don't want to So um, they're using this term um, In a kind of specious way When they're asking for um, Religious liberty in some of the um, uh, For instance um, Court cases They're actually really asking for our money In terms of our tax money With no strings attached so, um, you know, they're they're confusing the freedom to exercise religion with an entitlement to public funding and endorsement. You know, and, wow. and on this score, I have to say the Supreme Court's conservative majority is delivering the goods. In previous rules, mm. it has vaporized the establishment clause in the name of religious freedom. Um, and right now we have, um, the Supreme Court has before it a case um, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, which would grant religious organizations providing paid services to the public not just a freedom from discrimination law, but a positive right to claim public money on their own terms, even where those terms expressly contradict laws intended to secure the rights of other people. This is not religious freedom. This is religious entitlement and religious privilege. Yes. You know, it's really amazing. Religious nationalists, they talk a good game about... Individual responsibility, right? But they set all of that aside when it comes to uh, essentially feeding at the government trough. They want public funding for their religion.
0: Hmm. This is just
1: not the. This is not what the uh, the idea that the First Amendment is intended to defend.
0: Well, nationalism is not patriotism. Religious nationalism is kind of un-American, and from what I can tell, but. It's been around for a long time, and it's going to continue for quite a while. And one thing I really wanted to ask about, after Germany was defeated in the Great War, the First World War, the true believers refused to accept the reality that they had lost. They insisted it was a conspiracy, a fraud, a capitulation. Their denial gave birth to arguably the most potent and disastrous political lie of the 20th century, that stab in the bath. Uh, stab-in-the-back myth that they didn't really lose, but they were stabbed in the back. Uh, they insisted for years that the elected government of a new republic could never be legitimate custodians of the country. And now, 88%, according to a recent poll by YouGov, 88% of Trump voters believe the election result is illegitimate. A myth of betrayal and injustice is well underway. So perhaps the Trump insistence there was fraud could be an attempt to elevate, uh, to elevate. They stole it to the level of legend, perhaps seeding for the future division on a scale America has never seen. Your thoughts about going forward with that uh, myth that they, you know, that they stole it, and what the implications are from moving from here on out?
1: Yeah, there's no single cure or easy answer. I mean, one thing for sure is that the talking cure alone doesn't work. Um, I mean, of course, we should seek to promote the facts, but simply posting the facts is insufficient. I mean, I think we have to do this at multiple levels. We need to, number one, build an information system that is accountable to telling the truth uh, and that regards journalism as a public service, not just something to be used by monopolies to create profits. We need to organize all people to engage in the political process in meaningful ways um, um, we should not, um, you know, and sometimes, you know, um, the the work of that infrastructure building is unsexy. Sometimes it's sort of boring. It yeah. involves reaching out person to person. It involves signing new voters up. It involves a lot of um, hard work and communication, but it's really worth doing. Uh, I think something that we need to understand is that theology itself is not going to solve the problem. Now, I do want to stress that we should pr- be promoting religion-positive messaging focusing on tolerance and universal values of equality sort of to take back the narrative from the right, their sort of false idea of what um, uh, religious liberty, and when they say America's a Christian nation, it's like Mm -hmm. there have been social justice movements, uh, Christian movements in our country since our nation's founding. I mean, there have been uh, many disputes, many different ideas um, promoted under the idea of sort of this is like the true christianity i think um if you look at the um faith of Reverend William Barber, or Mm -hmm. um, faith of most, um, I think most American Christians reject the politics of conquest and division. This movement represents, I think, most people who voted for Biden-Harris would probably identify as Christian. So, um, you know, uh, Biden uh, put together, he had like hundreds of endorsements from faith leaders. So that sort of um, religion, positive messaging is really important. But we shouldn't kid kid ourselves that That's how you resolve this crisis alone. Um, The messaging does not replace the need to address these other structural issues of how information and misinformation spread in our society.
0: And I I wonder about the the appeal. You talk about sexiness, the appeal of uh, we were wronged. They stole it, and and going forward, I, I you know, I'm concerned about how that uh, plays itself out over the next four years or, or even more. If if that kind of a legend, that myth, I mean, myth is very powerful, as we know. Uh, I, I'm concerned. I mean, it's not going it, to. It, it sort of boosts religious authoritarianism. I worry.
1: It's true. You know, it's interesting. Um... It it makes me think about something that Franklin Graham said actually uh-huh. at the last Values Voter Summit which this year was online. He said, I'm paraphrasing here. He said, "We're nostalgic for the America that existed in the 1950s and 19 early 1960s and we want to get back to that." And President Trump is nostalgic for that America that existed in the 50s and early 60s and that's why we support him. So the early 50s, the 50s and the 1960s, like, let's go back to that. Let's think about what that really meant. During those years, segregation, racial discrimination, and gender discrimination were legal and rampant oh, yeah. in workplaces, and schools, in banking, in, you know, financial services, and housing. It was also illegal at that time to be gay. But there was one thing we did have in the 50s, and early 1960s. Um, which is a lower level of economic inequality, a yes. stronger middle class
0: Absolutely. and a
1: more secure or white working class at least, so why is that well, in 1950s a typical CEO made twenty times the average salary of his i would say his yes or were average workers, so that gave him a pretty nice lifestyle, right? You could get a boat, a vacation house, whatever. Well, by 2017, the CEO pay at a standard and poor 500 index firm had soared to an average of 361 times more than the average worker, over almost $14 million a year. (laughs) That's a far cry from the situation in the 50s that Franklin Graham claims to long for. So if we're going to be generous toward Franklin Graham, And other leaders like him, we could assume that they're nostalgic, not just for a time that Ah. the coordination of people of color and women was enforced by law, but for a time when the middle class stronger and the center appeared to hold. And yet the religious right is allied with these libertarian economic groups that have led to the intensification of these inequalities and degraded life for all Americans – um, and, you know, are destroying the middle class, making life so much more precarious for everybody, or most people, I should say. And um, and I, I think that that sort of produces a kind of irrationality and fanaticism, and that is one of the issues I think, you know, is going to have to be addressed. Now, um, you know, the, the right will... Uh, Identify anything that is not allied, completely 100% allied with the sort of far-right mm-hmm. economic wing of the liber- you know, libertarian wing of the Republican Party as communism or socialism. Right. Nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> you, can be, you can support capitalism with strong social safety net. You can support equi- equity in, um, in, in pay. You can uh, support uh, labor rights and still um, be a, a card-carrying, you know, flag-waving American Yes. and uh you know and 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 i think that um one needs to push back on that type of messaging that they're promoting
0: and and we can we absolutely can do it and uh the, the article in the new york times was trump or no trump religious authoritarianism is here to stay but there's more of us who treasure democracy and traditions of america we have to not give up and we recognize that there's a lot of power out there but we need to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And the book, which I highly recommend, *The Power Worshippers: Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism*, by our guest Catherine Stewart. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me back. Oh,